2: Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the 185th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm
0: Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. We're going to pick back up right where we left off at the end of the last show in the midst of the Battle of South Mountain, which took place on Sunday, September 14th, 1862.
2: As you guys will recall, fighting has already taken place at Fox's Gap, as the Federals, in an attempt to outflank Turner's Gap, went up the old Sharpsburg Road, and in a fierce three-hour clash, they managed to defeat the rebel defenders at Fox's, in the process killing Confederate Brigadier General Samuel Garland.
0: The Federals who seized Fox's Gap were from Jacob Cox's division of Reno's Ninth Corps. After capturing the pass, Cox decided that rather than push on to outflank Turner's Gap just to the north, he would consolidate his gains and wait for reinforcements.
2: Meanwhile, Confederate reinforcements were arriving on the scene in the form of a couple more of D.H. Hill's brigades, which had just marched up the National Road to Turner's Gap from Boonesboro. Hill had one of those brigades, the one led by Robert Rhodes, deploy to the north of the National Road, while the other, Roswell Ripley's brigade of Georgians and North Carolinians, he sent south toward Fox's Gap.
0: As Ripley approached Fox's Gap, he encountered G.B. Anderson, another of Harvey Hill's brigade commanders. Anderson's men were covering the ground between Fox's Gap and Turner's Gap. As the two rebel officers were discussing the situation, Hill came riding up at the head of two more brigades. These new troops were from D.R. Jones' division from James Longstreet's command.
2: Yep, the first of Longstreet's troops had arrived at South Mountain. As you guys will recall, Robert E. Lee and Longstreet had been up at Hagerstown, but on Saturday, Lee had started to receive alarming reports of the rapid federal movement and of enemy troops encamped just on the other side of South Mountain. When Lee had summoned Longstreet to discuss the situation, Longstreet urged Lee to withdraw D.H. Hill from South Mountain and concentrate Longstreet's and Hill's commands behind Antietam Creek at Sharpsburg, some seven or so miles west of South Mountain. There, Longstreet argued, they could form a strong defensive line and would also be on the Federals' flank if McClellan had thoughts of marching south to relieve the siege of Harper's Ferry.
0: But, having heard out Longstreet, Robert E. Lee had decided to fight for South Mountain. To give up the mountain without a fight would be to give up the back door to Harper's Ferry, and therefore put part of the Confederate force besieging that place at grave risk, and Lee was unwilling to do that. Instead, Lee would battle the Yankees at South Mountain with D.H. Hill's and Longstreet's troops, hoping to delay the enemy long enough for Stonewall Jackson to complete the capture of Harper's Ferry.
2: Even after that, Lee would have to scramble to reunite his divided and vulnerable army, but first things first, the Federals had to be delayed at South Mountain in order to give Lee the time he needed. And so late Saturday night, Lee had directed Longstreet to start to move the next morning back to Boonesboro, and from there up the mountain to go to the aid of D.H. Hill.
0: Longstreet had his men on the road about 8 a.m. on Sunday morning. He later remembered how, quote, The day was hot and the roads dry and beaten into impalpable powder that rose in clouds of dust from under our feet as we marched.
2: Due to the heat and from sheer exhaustion, many of Longstreet's men fell by the wayside, simply unable to keep up. It wasn't until after 12 o'clock that the head of Longstreet's column arrived at Boonesboro, having covered the ten miles from Hagerstown in four hours. The summit of South Mountain was still another two miles to the east.
0: In his book, The Battle of South Mountain, John David Hoptak writes, quote, Lee accompanied Longstreet's leading brigade, confined to his ambulance wagon, his hands wrapped in splints. As the ambulance creaked toward Boonesboro, Lee could hear the sounds of battle rising from the mountaintop and could see the slopes covered in smoke. Lee hastened Longstreet's men forward. Knowing that it would have been impossible for the wagon to deliver him to the field of battle, and knowing he was unable to do much because of his injured hands, Lee halted his driver near the foot of South Mountain assisted from the ambulance lee stood along the road offering words of encouragement as his men shuffled past he had no immediate direction of the battle he was forced to rely on his subordinates and his hard-fighting veteran troops
2: as the first of Longstreet's troops arrived on the mountaintop dh hill could see that a large federal force it was the first corps under joe hooker was maneuvering to strike hill's left flank near Frosttown gap which was held by only Rhodes' brigade of some 1,200 men. But rather than reinforcing Rhodes, Hill personally led Longstreet's troops to the south, toward Fox's Gap. This was the scene I described earlier. Harvey Hill was thinking his first priority needed to be to launch a counterattack and recapture Fox's Gap. He later said he, quote, Felt anxious to beat the force on my right before the Yankees made their grand attack, which I feared would be on my
0: left. D.H. Hill planned to have four Confederate brigades, two from Hill's own division and two from D.R. Jones, which would counterattack at Fox's Gap. Having made his orders known, Hill then rode back north to prepare for the inevitable big attack on his left. He left the assault on Fox's Gap in the hands of Roswell Ripley.
2: But things began to go wrong for the rebels from the start, and the counterattack, as Hill had envisioned it, never occurred. To begin with, the rough, steep terrain, strewn with large boulders and dotted with dense laurel thickets, made coordination between the Confederate units virtually impossible. And then, quite aside from those difficulties, the Yankees weren't in a cooperative mood. In fact, even while D.H. Hill had been explaining his plan for the counterattack to his subordinates that Sunday afternoon, federal reinforcements were coming up. The first to arrive was Orlando Wilcox's division of the Ninth Corps. Wilcox's Federals came under some severe cannon fire as they got into position alongside Jacob Cox's troops. By this time it was about 4 p.m., at least three and a half hours since Cox's Federals had captured Fox's Gap. Since then, a lull had settled over the mountaintop. But now, Wilcox's men started to advance, aiming to silence the troublesome rebel guns.
0: Nearby, meanwhile, Ripley was having a difficult time trying to orchestrate D.H. Hill's hoped-for assault. The rough terrain had led to a less-than-ideal Confederate deployment, and as a result, Thomas Drayton's brigade of rebels would be forced to deal alone with Wilcox's division of Federals. In this uneven contest, Drayton's men were driven back as the Yankees advanced relentlessly.
2: Meanwhile, more soldiers in blue from Reno's Ninth Corps were coming up. Samuel Sturgis's division reached the battlefield about 3.30. Sturgis had two brigades, led by James Nagel and Edward Ferraro. As Sturgis's men moved forward to support Wilcox's attack, The pressure built on Drayton's Confederates until it finally became too much to bear and the rebel line collapsed. Holding on to the last was the 3rd South Carolina Battalion, which refused to retreat until the last moment. Of the 160 men the battalion took into action that Sunday, only 24 emerged unhurt. Among the dead was the 3rd's commander, Lieutenant Colonel George James.
0: One of the Federal units that drove Drayton's Rebels from the field at Fox's Gap was the 9th New Hampshire in Nagel's Brigade. The 9th was one of the greenish units at South Mountain, having arrived at the front fresh from home just 20 days before. Here, Private George L. Wakefield describes the regiment's advance.
2: When we got to the stone wall on the side of the mountain, where the Rebels retreated just as we were about to climb over the wall, Colonel Fellows turned to the men and said, I want every man of the Ninth New Hampshire to follow me over that wall. Now, men of the Ninth, is the time to cover yourselves with glory or disgrace. Any man that does not cross this wall, I will report to his state. The sight of our saber bayonets and our fellows scrambling over the wall was too much for the doughty rebels who turned and fled up the mountain as if for their lives with the Ninth in hot pursuit. As we neared the top of the mountain, we came to a rail fence and stone wall combined, beyond which was an open field. The rebels were just getting over the fence when we received our first order to fire. We halted for a moment and fired, and if it was our first attempt, it nevertheless hit the mark. There is one incident which will recall to the boys' minds, the whole affair, as above written, and that is the rebel who was shot on the wing and who got his feet so locked in the fence that he could go neither forward nor backward, but sat there on the fence, bolt upright, stone dead, though the boys thought him only sullen because he did not answer when they spoke to him.
0: Private Wakefield passed unhurt through the 9th New Hampshire's baptism of fire at South Mountain, although he was wounded two years later. He survived that wound and ended the war a sergeant.
2: Because of the faulty Confederate dispositions, Drayton was forced to contend alone with a couple of divisions of Reno's Ninth Corps at Fox's Gap, and in doing so, Drayton's command was destroyed. In all, he lost half his brigade, dead, wounded, or captured.
0: But there was an attempt to help Drayton, as some of the other Confederates originally slated for the counterattack on Fox's Gap maneuvered in an attempt to get into the fight, they encountered a new column of rebel troops marching toward the sound of the guns. This was John B. Hood's division, composed of two veteran brigades.
2: As you guys will recall, Hood had been placed under arrest by Shanks Evans in a dispute over some captured federal ambulances. Rather than sending Hood away to await a court-martial, Robert E. Lee instead wanted to keep one of his hardest fighting generals close at hand, So he had directed that Hood remain with the army, where he would be close at hand, if needed.
0: As part of Longstreet's command, Hood's division followed D.R. Jones' men on the march from Hagerstown, arriving at the western base of South Mountain about 3.30 Sunday afternoon. Seeing Lee standing by the roadside and knowing they were going into battle, the men began to call out, "'Give us Hood! Give us Hood!'
2: Lee told them, "'Gentlemen, you shall have him!' Lee called Hood up from the rear of the column and offered him back his command in exchange for a simple statement of regret. Hood refused, though, insisting that his honor wouldn't permit an apology. Lee brushed this explanation aside and said the arrest was suspended while there was fighting to be done, and he sent Hood to lead his division into battle.
0: After Drayton's command was routed by the advancing Federals at Fox's Gap, Hood brought his men up as the other Confederate brigades originally slated for the counterattack here were still struggling to get into position or, defeated by the confusion and terrible terrain, were falling back before even getting into the fight. By the time they arrived on the scene, Hood's men would make little difference in the outcome of the fight for Fox's Gap, but the combat there, which had already claimed the life of one general, Confederate Samuel Garland, would claim the life of another, this one in blue, before the battle was over. The
2: sun was already setting and twilight was descending over the battlefield at Fox's Gap as Brigadier General Jesse Reno, commander of the Army of the Potomac's Ninth Corps, rode forward with his staff... Reno had spent most of the day with McClellan and right-wing commander Ambrose Burnside down on a piece of high ground near the small hamlet of Bolivar where Little Mac could observe and direct the attacks. Those attacks were taking place both to the south at Fox's Gap and to the north at Frosttown Gap since the 1st and 9th Corps were spread out along a nearly three-mile-wide front advancing up the mountain in a double envelopment of the Rebel line designed to turn them out of Turner's Gap.
0: As Reno rode up the old Sharpsburg Road, he congratulated his men on their success in seizing Fox's Gap. But in the gathering darkness and advancing too close to a Confederate position in some woods, Reno was hit by a bullet that entered his chest just below his heart.
2: As the mortally wounded general was carried down the mountain, the stretcher party came upon one of Reno's division commanders, Samuel Sturgis. Sturgis and Reno had graduated from West Point together sixteen years earlier and remained good friends. Sturgis knelt to talk to Reno, asking if the wound was serious. Reno replied weakly, "'Hello, Sam. I'm dead,' No, no, not as bad as that, I hope, replied Sturgis.
0: Reno said, Yes, yes, it is all up with me. I am dead. Goodbye. And with that, thirty-nine-year-old Jesse Reno passed away, having been struck down just yards from where Samuel Garland had received his death wound just hours earlier.
2: And so, by the end of the day on Sunday, the Confederates had had been unable to hold, or later recapture, Fox's gap. Garland's and Drayton's brigades had been shattered in the effort though, losing respectively 40 and 50 percent of their total strength in the fighting. When night fell, the Federal Ninth Corps held control of the pass, having lost 157 killed, 691 wounded, and 41 missing. But the Ninth Corps' effort that day against the right flank of the Confederate position, defending vital Turner's Gap, was only half the story. Because as Reno's men battled for possession of Fox, Fox's Gap, fighting Joe Hooker's first corps off to the north, was heavily engaged against the left of the Rebel line, north of Turner's Gap.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
0: Joseph Hooker's 1st Corps of the Army of the Potomac, with George Meade's division in the lead, passed through Middletown about noon on Sunday, marching towards South Mountain on the National Road. By that time, Cox's division had been struggling with Garland's rebels for several hours for possession of Fox's Gap.
2: As Meade's 1st Corps troops marched forward, they could see clouds of dust kicked up by the three divisions of the 9th Corps ahead of them, going to Jacob Cox's support. To see where his men would be headed and what they would confront, Hooker galloped forward to the high ground near Bolivar where McClellan and Burnside would later observe the fight for South Mountain. Hooker had three divisions in his corps led by Rufus King, John Reynolds, and James Ricketts. But fears of a Confederate invasion of Pennsylvania had led that state's governor to insist that native son Reynolds be detached from the army for duty with the Keystone States militia. Hooker was frustrated at losing Reynolds to what he felt was no good cause, but he was glad he had a solid officer to elevate to command Reynolds' division, George Meade.
0: Another of Hooker's divisions went through a command change on September 14th, even as the men were marching toward South Mountain. Rufus King, who y'all may recall suffered a seizure just before 2nd Manassas, was still suffering physically from his bouts with epilepsy, and he was relieved of command on the 14th and replaced by John Hatch.
2: With Reno's Ninth Corps marching to battle on the old Sharpsburg Road and striking the Confederate right flank at Fox's Gap, Wing Commander Burnside, desiring to orchestrate a double envelopment of Turner's Gap, wanted Hooker's Hooker's 1st Corps to swing north of the National Road and over very tough terrain attack the Confederate left. Hooker's men, as they deployed for battle, looked westward, up the slopes of South Mountain, and they knew for certain there was serious business to be done that Sabbath day, because the difficult ground up there was intimidating when viewed from below. Hooker's men realized the rebel defenders would have to be rooted out of a commanding position.
0: Having studied the ground before him, Hooker decided on a plan of attack. Meade's division on the right would sweep up a ridge that ran north from Turner's Gap, then through a deep ravine in an effort to turn the Confederate left. While Meade's men attacked that ridge and up through the ravine, Hatch's troops, to Meade's left, would attack another ridge that ran parallel to the National Road, closer to Turner's Gap. Ricketts' division would be held in reserve, ready to support either Meade or Hatch.
2: Having settled on his plan of attack, Hooker gave the order to advance just before 5 p.m. From atop the two ridges, or spurs, and spread across the ravine, a thin line of Alabamians, under the command of Robert Rhodes, watched the Yankee lines start forward. From near his headquarters at the Mountain House, at Turner's Gap, D.H. Hill watched as well. Hill realized he was in serious trouble. On his right, at Fox's Gap, Drayton's brigade was at that moment reeling from the assault of Wilcox's division of the Ninth Corps, but Hill couldn't devote his entire focus to his crumbling right, since, as he later said, "...affairs were now very serious on our left."
0: Despite the seriousness of the situation, Hill couldn't help but be impressed by the masses of Federals as they stepped out and started to make their way up the mountain. He admitted that, quote, the advance was steady and made almost with the precision of movement of a parade day, end quote. And all Hill had to confront the enemy here was Rhodes' brigade of Alabamians, about 1,200 men in all.
2: One of the Confederates preparing to meet the Yankees here was Private Otis D. Smith of the 6th Alabama of Rhodes' Brigade. Smith later recalled how, quote, "...our brigade occupied a narrow, precipitous ridge on the extreme left of our line. Here an amusing incident occurred. Our line was formed immediately in front of a little, one-roomed hut on the crest of the ridge." The hut was occupied by an old woman of ample proportions and her brood of white-haired children. Standing in the doorway, she barred all entrance of soldiers or officers seeking water. She denounced all comers as low-down thieving rebels. The soldiers cheered her at each outburst of her wrath. Attracted by the uproar, Colonel Gordon rode up with his staff. Raising his hat in the most courtly manner, He said with the greatest politeness and deference, My dear madam, fighting will begin in five minutes. Your life and that of your children are in imminent peril. You must leave here at once. The old woman, her eyes blazing with wrath, replied, I know what you want, you thieving rebels. You want to get me out of my house and come and steal all I've got. I won't go, so there, I'll die first. The soldiers yelled, Go it, old lady! Hold the fort, bully for you, etc. Gordon retreated amidst the ill-concealed laughter of his staff, for once speechless and utterly discomforted. I never knew the fate of this mountaineer Spartan mother, as at that moment my company was ordered to the foot of the mountain as skirmishers.
0: Smith was wounded and captured during the fight at South Mountain. He was later exchanged, but saw only rear area duty for the rest of the war.
2: Rhodes deployed his five Alabama regiments across the steep terrain, but they were spread thinly, so much so that none of his units was in contact with another. To make matters worse, as the Yankees advanced up the mountain, Rhodes could see that their line stretched at least half a mile to the north, beyond his left flank. Unknown to Rhodes, though, at that moment, help was on the way.
0: Shortly after 4 p.m., Colonel Peter Stevens' brigade of South Carolinians had reached the mountain house, where D.H. Hill had set up his headquarters. Behind Stevens were Hood's two brigades. As we've already said, Hood's troops were directed toward Fox's Gap, but Harvey Hill sent Stevens' small brigade to aid Robert Rhodes. In all, Stevens had just 550 men, and so when combined with Rhodes' command, there were about 1,800 Confederates to contend with Meade's 4,000 Federals.
2: The soldiers in blue struggled upward through what Meade described as, quote, the most rugged country he ever saw. On the far right of Meade's line was the brigade of Thomas Seymour, Seymour led his five Pennsylvania regiments up the mountainside and succeeded in driving off the 6th Alabama in order to capture the North Ridge. With that, Rhodes' left had been turned, but Seymour wasn't finished yet. Once his men gained possession of the Key Ridge, Seymour directed his men to keep up the pressure on the rapidly retreating rebels. The Pennsylvanians surged forward and Robert Rhodes realized his line was in danger of completely unraveling.
0: In the fading daylight, all three of Meade's brigades quickly moved forward to take advantage of the situation. Because of the steep, difficult nature of the terrain, each brigade soon lost touch with the others, and there was little coordination between the commands, but ahead of the advancing Federals was just the thin line of Confederates, and Seymour had already outflanked them. One of the Union soldiers advancing up the mountainside was Sergeant Ashbella F. Hill of the 8th Pennsylvania Reserves.
2: Sergeant Hill would later recall how, quote, We pressed the rebels closely. They stood a while, loading and firing, but at last began to waver. Directly in front of the right of our regiment, they gave way. We soon found ourselves having gained the flank of the 17th South Carolina. We were within 20 or 30 steps of them, directly on their left, and they did not see us. Then we mowed them down. Poor fellows, I almost pitied them to see them sink down by the dozens at every discharge. I remember taking deliberate aim at a tall South Carolinian who was standing with his side to me, loading his gun. I fired, and he fell into a crevice between two rocks. Step by step we drove the rebels up the steep side of the mountain. By moving a little to the left, I reached the spot where I had seen the rebel fall. On my arrival, he arose to a sitting position. I inquired whether he was wounded, and he mournfully nodded assent. The blood was flowing from a wound in the neck. He also pointed to a wound in the arm. The same bullet had made both wounds, for at the time I fired, he was in the act of ramming a bullet home, his arm extended vertically. He rose to his feet, and I was pleased to find him able to walk. I informed him that, in the nature of things, he was a prisoner, and I sent him to the rear, under charge of one of the boys. Having done so, I threw myself upon the ground, and crawled among the rocks to a position fifteen paces in advance of the company, with the intention of taking some unwary rebel by surprise, and getting a fair shot at him. Step by step the rebels retired, I waited at my new position till the line came up. Our boys had just reached me when Dave Malone was struck in the head by a bullet and he fell back, quivering and gasping for breath. He soon expired. After the battle, he was buried in that wild, lonely mountain where he fell.
0: Meade's Division of Pennsylvania Reserves would lose nearly 400 men at South Mountain and almost 500 more at Antietam, including Sergeant Hill, who was severely wounded there and ended up being discharged from the Army in December.
2: Rhodes' line was now shattered, his men fleeing up the mountainside and being pursued every step by the victorious Pennsylvanians. Confederate soldiers, too exhausted to go farther or too stubborn to fall back, were rooted out from behind nearly every tree and boulder. D. H. Hill would later say that it was, quote, "...pitiable to see the gallant but hopeless struggle of these Alabamians against such mighty odds."
0: Hopeless though the situation may have been, Rhodes wasn't yet ready to completely abandon the fight. With whatever troops he could rally, mostly from the 3rd, 5th, and 12th Alabama, and anchored by John B. Gordon's tough 6th Alabama, Rhodes managed to cobble together a new defensive line.
2: But this new line, like the old one, was outflanked, and the Confederates again retreated, with heavy casualties, until they were only about 200 yards north of Turner's Gap, where they formed up, parallel with the National Road and facing north.
0: By this time, darkness was starting to cover the mountain, and this, combined with the rugged terrain, made further pursuit by the Federals impossible. By nightfall, though, Meade's division had driven back both Rhodes' and Stevens' brigades, and as the Yankees began replenishing their cartridge boxes and caring for their wounded comrades, they relished in the glow of their hard-fought victory, having conquered both the rebels and the challenging terrain.
2: At 5 p.m., as Meade's troops launched their attack, Hatch's division also stepped off. Hooker's plan called for Meade and Hatch to advance simultaneously, and while Meade was to seize the north spur and sweep up the ravine, Hatch was to advance straight ahead and carry the south ridge closer to Turner's Gap.
0: While D.H. Hill watched Hatch's Federals form for the advance down below, the exhausted soldiers of three Confederate brigades came tramping up the National Road on the western slopes of South Mountain. For these men, it had already been a long, hot day. As part of D.R. Jones's division of Longstreet's command, they began the day in the vicinity of Hagerstown, 15 miles northwest of Turner's Gap. The heat, dust, and fast marching forced many men to leave the ranks, collapsing by the roadside.
2: Captain Henry Owen of the 18th Virginia remembered that, "'Off we went at the double quick, down the long, sandy lanes, with clouds of hot, suffocating dust floating around us and drifting away in heavy volumes across the fields on the roadsides.'" The perspiration welled out of every pore and ran down the neck and arms and back in little rivulets. The clouds of dust settled upon the clothes and hands and face, until the hair and whiskers were so changed in color that the soldier could hardly recognize his messmate.
0: Early that afternoon the tired men of these brigades, sweating and coated with dust, trudged through Boonesboro. They were first ordered up the old Sharpsburg Road to attack the federal force at Fox's Gap, but after a mile of marching, this order was countermanded. They were to turn back around and head up to the National Road to Turner's Gap. This marching and counter-marching added an extra two miles to their already long day.
2: Straggling took a continued severe toll. Longstreet later wrote that because of marching between 18 and 20 miles that Sunday, before even seeing any action, These three brigades, quote, were thinned to skeletons, end quote, when they arrived at the summit of South Mountain.
0: It was nearly 5 p.m. and the sun was just beginning to set when the vanguard of these tired units reached the mountain house. Also arriving on the scene was Longstreet, who exercised the authority of his superior rank to take command of the field from D.H. Hill.
2: Longstreet didn't like what he saw. Almost immediately after arriving, he sent a message back down the mountain to Robert E. Lee warning the army commander, quote, to prepare his mind for disappointment and give time for arrangements for retreat, end quote. With the entire Federal Ninth Corps already stacked up at Fox's Gap on the Confederate right flank, and now the enemy First Corps sweeping forward against the left, Old Pete didn't believe it was possible for the Confederates to emerge victorious from this field of battle, but nevertheless he began positioning his just-arrived troops, sending them down the mountainside to contest the Federal's advance.
0: During the fierce fighting that followed, John Gibbon's Black Hat Brigade, which had distinguished itself at Bronner's Farm at 2nd Manassas, turned in another heroic performance, attacking directly up the National Road. Meanwhile, John Hatch almost became the third general officer to fall at South Mountain on September 14th. Just as his troops charged and swept over a stone wall where the stubborn rebel defenders had been sheltering, Hatch was hit in the leg. A bullet passed through his right calf. He was carried from the field and turned over command of his division to Abner Doubleday.
2: As the overpowering Federal advance carried the soldiers in blue up the mountain slope, The shattered elements of the three exhausted Confederate brigades that Longstreet had just fed into the battle fell back toward Turner's Gap, where they joined the survivors of Rhodes and Stevens' brigades. All of these Confederate units had put up a tough, determined stand on the mountain, but in the end they couldn't prevent Meade and Hatch from gaining the high ground north of the National Road and turning the rebel left.
0: As darkness brought an end to the fighting, even though the Confederates technically still held Turner's Gap, they had suffered heavy losses, and they were holding on to the vital pass by their fingernails. Knowing this, it was hard to contain the excitement at McClellan's headquarters. The Ninth Corps had driven the rebels from Fox's Gap, thus turning the Confederate right flank. Added to that, there was Hooker's success in entirely routing the Rebel left and sweeping up the almost impossible terrain north of the National Road.
2: At 20 till 10 that night, Little Mac telegraphed Henry Halleck, saying, quote, After a very severe engagement, the corps of Hooker and Reno have carried the heights. The troops behaved magnificently. They never fought better. It has been a glorious victory. I cannot tell you whether the enemy will retreat during the night or appear in increased force in the morning. I am hurrying up everything from the rear to be prepared for any eventuality." But when McClellan sent off this jubilant dispatch to Washington, he only reported on the action that had unfolded to his immediate front. As he made clear in the message, he didn't yet know the results of Franklin's efforts at Crampton's Gap six miles to the south.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Unholy Sabbath, the Battle of South Mountain in History and Memory by Brian Matthew Jordan.
2: It's interesting that our um, other South Mountain book recommendation was written by John David Hoptak, and this one is by Brian Matthew Jordan. So obviously, to write a book about this battle, you need to use your full name, right, Tracy Catherine?
0: Right, Richard Allen.
2: Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
0: Also at the website, you can find links to the show's Twitter feed and Facebook page.
2: Yep, and then if we wrap up the show, just a quick shout-out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Aaron and Ertis, which I'm almost certain I didn't pronounce correctly.
0: Thanks, y'all.
2: Oh, and if you're still listening right now, here's a little bonus footnote. We've mentioned the division of Pennsylvania Reserves several times now, going back to the peninsula, and you, dear Civil War podcast listener, may be wondering, hmm, just what are these Pennsylvania Reserves?
0: Well, the long and the short of it is that Pennsylvania filled their War Department quota of enlistments and used those men to form the usual volunteer regiments. But then so many additional men had signed up that the state used those extra men, so to speak, to form additional volunteer regiments, and these were the Pennsylvania Reserves.
2: Yep, Uh, so there you go. All right, thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War. 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracing, I do hope you'll join us again next time when we finish up the Battle of South Mountain by talking about what all happened down at Crampton's Gap, and then we'll get both armies on their way to Sharpsburg.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.